The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the first chapter. Glory to you, Lord. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you know that for many years we had a ministry here called Bonhoeffer House. It was inspired by the German uh, theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and specifically his book Life Together, which was itself really Bonhoeffer's vision for theological education. Bonhoeffer and others constructed this vision for seminary out of necessity and to try to improve upon what had already come before. What necessitated the change was, well, old-fashioned persecution by the Nazis, who had basically made Orthodox Christianity illegal. You know, Orthodox Christianity, the kind that like Nathaniel did in our Gospel lesson, proclaimed Jesus Christ as King and Lord and Savior and God. Because Christianity then was illegal, the instruction of future pastors had to go underground. So from 1935 to 1937, Bonhoeffer lived among a group of men in a large estate in what is now basically western Poland. And their days were marked living in community, marked by prayer and common meals, and of course having classes and fellowship. And many of those young men would uh, die in World War II. And really, other than life together, this vision for seminary has been totally lost and abandoned. Our ministry was not motivated by the need to go underground, But as we were new members of a small and fledgling church body that didn't have a seminary, we were trying to offer something that could get going right away. And like Bonhoeffer's experiment, it would be a departure from a mostly or totally academic seminary environment and experiment. Like Bonhoeffer's community, We expected those who lived here in that community to do evangelism, have daily prayer together, share common meals, and be active in this or another congregation. 
But really, the the larger point is that if we are living in a time where we're on the wrong side of church popularity, and we are, then if you choose a life of ministry, you need to know what you're getting yourself into. And you need to be an intentionally formed man or woman of God who can withstand the apathy that we face or even the outright hostility to our confession of faith. And I'm thinking of all of that because of our gospel lesson this morning in which Jesus says to Philip, follow me. In the opening words of life together, really in the introduction, uh, Eberhard Betke, who is really Bonhoeffer's best friend, he quotes Bonhoeffer in another book who says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now Bonhoeffer wrote those words while he was doing this, uh, leading this illegal seminary. So he probably had a sense of uh, what he meant by that. What were the cost of these words? Though like most of us, he never could have believed that even given the Nazis' propaganda and actions, that he would have ended up executed about 10 years later. But he was. And so this whole story ends up being a a way that we can reflect on the astonishing speed at which one of the most advanced civilizations in the world turned in on itself and was destroyed by war. How quickly, for example, neighbors turned on one another. How quickly men and women lost their nerve in the face of a display of power. How quickly new truths and new standards of acceptable speech and behavior were adopted. How quickly was Christianity marginalized out of fear. But in actuality, the ideas that the Nazis promoted in many ways were not all that new. Eugenics, or the idea of building some master race through breeding and so on and so forth, That was first proposed in the German Academy about 60 years before the Nazis. By the time Hitler's brain trust uh, wanted to put it into effect by force, what we call the Holocaust, there was little intellectual argument against it on principle. It had already been accepted. And those small ways that resistance had been ended in the decade before the Holocaust, well, No one had nerve anymore to stand up to evil. You see, Jewish life did not become unworthy of life overnight. It only seemed that way. And it wasn't just the Jews who suffered, of course, at the hands of the Nazis. In truth, it was anyone who resisted along the way. They made sure of that. It was anyone who didn't support the Nazi agenda because, you know, neighbors were spying on one another. It was children who would go off to Hitler youth camps and and learn about Nazi propaganda and then go report their parents to the authorities if they didn't buy in. For fear of retribution, Germans saved their own skin by turning on one another. Behaviors that were unthinkable only months before were now rewarded 
by the state. Now these days, it's popular to call everyone that you don't like a Nazi. But really, Nazism isn't, you know, only reserved for the Nazis. That is to say, it really isn't that unusual in the history of man for ideas or movements or thought to become quickly the accepted truth and to argue against it, well, that makes you dangerous. The seeds for revolution are often sowed for decades. Their flowering just feels fast to those who haven't been paying attention. Like a lot of people, I'm concerned about the groupthink that seems to have taken hold of our nation. Censorship and now outright banning from social media is, to me, at least concerning. And one wonders how long there will be room for disagreement on the issues of our day. Of course, maybe I'm just paranoid and no one has anything to worry about. But it is chilling to me that a few tech billionaires can control the free speech of what used to be the most powerful position in the world. And if they can decide who gets to speak and not, why would you think that they wouldn't come after you too? Unless, of course, you're already self-censoring. You see how it works. Bonhoeffer's colleague and an early resistor to Hitler, a friend of his, Pastor Martin Niemöller, very famous for proclaiming from the pulpit that God is not my Fuhrer. I'm sorry, yes that God is not my Fuhrer. Well, he penned a very famous poem. He spent about seven years in prison, by the way, uh, for resisting Hitler. He actually had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Hitler, uh, fascinatingly enough, and he, his regret with that meeting was he tried to save the lives of all of his friends, and he did not spend that time proclaiming the gospel to Hitler. All of that said, this, this uh, poem has become somewhat famous. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing it said a lot lately, and that's a good thing. You may have heard it before, it reads this. First they came for the socialists, but I did not speak out because I'm not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, but I did not speak out because I'm not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I'm not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. When is the right time to speak? Is it now? Am I being too political? Well, Niemöller certainly thought that he had missed the mark, and he didn't think he was being too political. Bonhoeffer didn't either. After all, life and truth and liberty are preeminent Christian values. Christians should fight for them. And when Jesus says, follow me, as he does in our reading from John today. What exactly do you think that you are being invited to do? I can assure you of this. I hate conflict. It gnaws at me from the inside. It makes me miserable. That's how most of us deal with conflict. None of us like it. I guess some ill people like it and seek it. And I actually admire people who can deal with conflict on an ongoing basis in the name of accomplishing something worthwhile. In fact, accomplishing anything worthwhile will bring about conflict in your life. But I didn't get into ministry to do really anything but to preside over a bunch of happy congregations and be among happy people who just love hearing about Jesus, maybe baptizing some people, administering the Lord's Supper, 
I mean, really all I want to do is preach for about 40 years, then go retire somewhere in obscurity and never be heard from again. No doubt many of you hope to live a similar life, peaceable, quiet. But Jesus says to you and to me, follow me. In fact, here's the full quote from Bonhoeffer that I began earlier. It's from The Cost of Discipleship. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Have you died to Christ? I mean, have you really died to Christ? Or do you have one foot in God's world and one foot in this world? Does Jesus Christ get honorable mention in your life, or is he always in first place? Does Christianity have anything to say about the world in which we live, or does Christianity only have something to say about our personal sin and our eternal lives? Those are questions we really need to have clear answers to, and the sooner, the better. The good news about dying to Christ is that you have nothing left to lose, and you don't have to be afraid of the powers that be if and when they tell you that what you believe or think is harmful or hateful or wrong. I mean, it might be. You might have some really harmful or hateful beliefs. But if you proclaim authentic Christianity, what you believe is not harmful or hateful or wrong. It is true and good, and it produces fruit for the world. Look at Jesus' interaction with Nathanael. Jesus calls Philip to follow him. Philip goes and tells his brother. It's a good thing he's already evangelizing. Nathanael says, I'm not going to follow that guy. He's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And Jesus has an amazing response. He says, ah, Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or no guile. Now, I'm not sure if Jesus was teasing him or joking or if he was just being clearly direct and honest. Most of, most of the commentaries I read this week said Jesus is just being honest. You see, an Israelite might be thought of as a trickster because Israel... Jacob was, in fact, a trickster. Remember, he sold his brother's, got his brother's birthright for him and stole his blessing and all that kind of stuff. But here's Nathanael, without guile. And Jesus says he knows this because he saw Nathanael under the fig tree before Philip ever showed up, which means that Jesus must have had some kind of supernatural vision. And maybe what he saw was Nathanael studying the Torah, studying the Bible under that fig tree. He knew that Nathanael was a good and honest man. And he was honest enough to say, I'm not going to follow that guy because he's from Nazareth. But Jesus wins him over, and Nathanael makes one of the most breathtaking confessions in the New Testament. Certainly every bit as powerful as Peter's in Matthew 16. 
or Thomas's at the end of St. Luke, or St. John, rather. He says that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. But Jesus says that what has happened so far is just the beginning. And in this context, that's what I want you to hear as well. For you and for me, like Nathaniel, we will see greater things than these. We will see, like this fulfilled vision of Jacob before him. Remember Jacob's ladder? Jacob goes to sleep in a dream, and the skies open up in this dream, and he sees angels descending and descending uh, into heaven on this ladder. Well, that's clearly what Jesus is referencing. Angels ascending and descending from heaven onto Jesus, the Son of Man. And that is the vision to which we are living and working for right now. That is what will be ours when that day comes, when the fulfillment of all things comes, when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead. And that is how we live and survive and thrive right now with joy and peace in our hearts during these times that may prove to be uncertain. Well, our Christian beliefs, not our secular or economic beliefs necessarily, I don't know to the degree we have any mandate to fight for those, but will our specific Christian doctrines come under attack? Will they be banished? I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, so I couldn't say. But if they are, the call to follow Jesus is the same, and so is the promise. Amen.